Section 15. Personal Recollections of Early Melbourne and Victoria. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Lucy Burgoyne. Personal Recollections of Early Melbourne and Victoria by William Westgarth. Section 15. Early Victorian Legislation. They that stand high have many blasts to shape them. Richard III. Hear ye not the hum of mighty workings. Keats. Stay, you imperfect speakers. Macbeth. We commenced with an unpretending budget, although memorable 1853, with all its gold and its progress, in what Wentworth happily called the precipitation into a nation, had dawned upon us. The speaker of our then single-chamber system, one-third nominees, had but four hundred pounds a year, which is guide sufficient to indicate the scale and style of other things. Our first choice for speaker fell upon Dr. Palmer, an early colonist of the medical profession, and of good culture and bearing, but who had not previously taken any prominent social position. His ambition was probably stimulated by the fact that amongst the busy colonists, who perhaps foresaw more work than either honour or pay, there was no candidate but himself. The rest of us speculated, not without expected amusement, as to the official attire our new dignitary would appear in. Probably any other of the elected members, as Speaker, would have decided on simple evening dress, as most consistent with the modern tendency to make a gentleman plain and the waiter and footman dressily conspicuous, and this would perhaps have decided as to the chair, in that respect for all the future. But Palmer we all knew to be too much of the old Tory for any surrender of that kind, and there was, besides, just a trace of the oddly positive in him, although otherwise a genial good fellow which held out promise of sport. We were only half gratified. He appeared in a plain Quaker-like but much braided coat, which was understood to have gone for dress in the good old times of Charles II, a time when kings were really kings. Three prominent subjects came before us for legislation. First, that fundamental topic of interminable difference the land question. Second, the goldfields question, which was even more important then, seeing that the government, under pretense of old English law, to the effect that all treasure trove was the crowns, claimed the whole goldfields as crown territory, whose population had thus no rights, political or fiscal, except the crown chose to give such. Third, the transportation question, which, under the startling emergencies of the moment, was perhaps second to no other before us. 
It was rather amusing to see how business went at first, for nearly all of us were quite inexperienced in public life. But Mr. Barker, our first clerk of the council, took bravely to his duties, and soon became a useful referee. There was much looking up for authority, and O'Shaughnessy indulged in many a profane joke at May, having taken definite possession of Speaker Palmer's brain. One most decided obstacle to our legislative progress was the fact that the vast incessant tide of business thrust upon the colony made it hardly possible to spare any time for other than each one's own private concerns. In my own case, the only leisure I ever had, then in the six days, was half an hour for a walk and a thought in the early morn. The entire remainder of the day, and great part of the night also, were one succession of private business, public meetings, and deputations, council committees, and council sittings. The unprepared speeches were in due accordance. Dr. now Sir Charles Nicholson, the Sydney Speaker, happened to pay us a visit during these early legislative throes of baby Victoria, and as I sat by him in the privileged place near the Speaker's chair, he remarked that, prepared as he was to find a crude spectacle, he had never imagined an assemblage of such helpless incompetency. But, in defence, I took Bulware Lighton's view, that genius being mainly labour, and labour mainly time, the want of the last might be merely preventing the first. And so it has turned out long ago, so that if Sir Charles, who, I am glad to say, is still the fore, were to pay another visit, and try conclusions with Mr. Service, and possibly a hundred other besides, he might reach a different verdict. We were all confessedly terribly raw in all matters of parliamentary form. One day, while we were more than usually puzzled in that respect, Town Clerk Kerr, who happened to be present, was continually sending to myself and others written slips, suggesting the proper or common sense course. I could not help thinking that, if he had been but a trifle less of a party man, there was no one in the colony who would have made a better speaker. With his sufficiently portly person and commanding presence, his imperturbable gravity and his well-filled head in everything required from that quarter for the position, but this was an utter non-posimus, with the nominees and squatting members, most of whom, with Ebden at their head, would almost rather have endured a presentable Vandemonian expiree in the chair that the ultra-democratic town clerk and caustic ex-editor of the anti-squatter and anti-government Argus. Some of the officials, however, were fairly up to their mark, notably our Attorney-General Stall, now Sir William, the ex-Chief Justice, who, both then and since, has ever held the first position in ability. 
at an interval came Auditor-General Ebden, and one or two others, official or unofficial. My worthy friend Castle, Collector of Customs, or Commissioner thereof, as I think he was then called, was brimful of information for us all, but not much of a speaker. The other side of the house, that of the two-thirds elected, was, in my memory, raw throughout. O'Shaughnessy's strong brogue and ungainly delivery and manner had not yet been overbalanced by the solidity of his arguments. Johnson, our third metropolitan, had early descended, or else condescended, to pugnant snapping at the heels of the nominees, as though these sacred persons had been ordinary mortals like the ruck of membership on his own side of the table. By far our most vivacious member was William Rutledge, of Port Ferry, who, with an earnestness of manner, contrasting with a merry twinkle of the eye, and with a ready but utterly negligent tongue, gave us many a laugh. He was highly indignant on one occasion, as I remember, on hearing that a bet had been taken that, on a particular committee day, he would rise and speak more than thirty different times, and he was still more angry when his informant went on to tell him that the bet had been won. One of the country members, whose name I am not quite sure of, set us all in a roar on one occasion, by taking as a personal affront, and very tartly too, as though quite intended, the interruption to his speech by the arrival of a royal message from the governor. Another curiosity was the way in which the House adjusted itself for legislative action, almost as matter of course. Under the instincts of the position, the elected members were, in fact and in principle alike, opposed to the nominated, and that, by consequent instincts, ever meant simply the government. The press, with similar unanimity, was on the elected side, for both were in the fight for the full constitutional concession, which came a few years later. In anything that touched squatting, however, the squatting representatives, led by another old friend, W. F. Splatt, of the Wimmera, went over bodily, thus giving the government a small majority, which, as I have shown in my sketch of Mr. Latrobe, blocked us seriously in dealing with the waste or crown lands for the benefit of the imploring tens of thousands of people. Sometimes, by the force of our case, we stole a vote from the ministerial side, as when Mr. Afterwards Judge Polman defected upon my anti-transportation motion for transmission to the home government. There was one sole exception on our elective side, another old personal friend, William Campbell of Bolodon, who, uncongenial towards the disturbing democratic prospect, voted steadily for the government. On this account, Edward Wilson, then editing the Argus, found for him the designation of the lost sheep 
of the Loddon, which, as from the enemy's side, was no bad piece of humour, and it took its place in the colony's category accordingly, alongside of Ebden's disgustingly rich and possibly other-like humour, which I have forgotten. One of the nominee members, Mr. Dunlop, took me roundly to task for asserting that, through a mere accident of law, about treasure trove, being, as of old, the property of the Crown, the government claimed to confiscate the constitutional rights of one half of the colonists. I explained, but the situation really explained itself, the common sense, as well as the political attainment of the day, could not possibly tolerate such an application of old black letter to the entirely novel and unanticipated circumstances of these great and populous goldfields. The elected members were compelled to threaten the only course which appeared legally open to them, namely, that of not voting the supplies. If the goldfields regulations and receipts and expenditure, all of which the government had claimed as entirely their own independent matter, were not of reasonable and suitable character, and in accordance with the colonial representatives' views. At the last, however, there was happily mutual agreement. The protection question was early brought on, of course from Geelong, by my worthy old friend J. F. Strachan, its member, and both its income and, for that time, its exit were amusing. Why lose so much revenue in order to set up colonial brandy-making? He was asked, was the domestic article we were to make such sacrifice for to be superior to the imported? On the contrary, he replied, it was because it would be inferior and must therefore be thus bonused against the superiority of the rival import. So when we were to lose revenue and pay a higher price in order to substitute bad liquor for good, let us still keep to the better quality at the lower price. So the proposal was laughed out, Strachan himself, with his usual good humour, joining in the laugh. It would be supererogation to go into our early legislation which is familiar to the colony in a hundred publications. Besides the fact that I have touched already on some of the prominent subjects or questions in which I myself took a part, such as the movement against transportation, the new and rather startling course in the Convicts Prevention Act, and the First Gold Commission, I have therefore exhausted my subject so far as it is properly my own, and must hasten to take my leave. When I first thought of this work for the delightfully complete leisure and repose of a long voyage, I feared that I might find but little to say of matters of a retrospect approaching two generations. But seated at last with pen in hand, with the memory stirred up, I had ere long to exercise mercy towards my expected readers. 
in sifting the surging crowd of recollections so as to keep to such as might have general interest. I hope I have reasonably succeeded, and if I have also contributed, in however small a degree, to the information, interest, or amusement of my old friends and fellow colonists. I shall be abundantly repaid. William Wescarth, S.S. Coptic, at sea, latitude 45 degrees south, longitude 142 degrees east, 25th July, 1888. And this is my conclusion. Much ado about nothing. End of section 15